Summer drinking season is long, which is why non-alcoholic beer is a great addition to your cooler. But what makes you reach for one NA beer over another? Is it great flavor, variety of styles? Maybe you just like a cool can. Well, no matter what you're looking for in a great non-alcoholic beer, the answer is always athletic. Great flavor, it's athletic. Award-winning styles, it's athletic. Huge variety, guess what? It's athletic. From IPAs, extra dark, sours, hazies, and more, to summertime favorites like light brews and goldens, it's the number one NA beer brand in the U.S. It's athletic. Ask for it. Fit for all times. Enjoy them anytime, anywhere. Think about it. You're hanging out at the beach. Maybe you're going to a music festival, ball game, camping, late night, early morning. Wherever the summer takes you, the best part is zero hangover the next day. This summer, ask for the only non-alcoholic beer you need to know. Athletic. Head to askforathletic.com to find it near you and use the code TA2024 to get 15% off your first online order. That's code TA2024 at checkout for 15% off your first order. Near beer. Exclusions and conditions apply. Athletic Brewing Company. Fit for all times. Welcome to Rates and Barrels, presented by Tops. Be sure to check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. If you're watching this show on YouTube, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe to this channel. If you're listening to this podcast on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, we'd really appreciate it. If you took a moment to leave a few kind words and a nice review for us, it goes a long way toward helping new people find our show, which is you know good for all of us. So, uh, you know, how's it going for you on this Wednesday? It's good. Good. I'm up to uh, 312 miles on the year, so I'm on pace uh, when it comes to running. Um, and I feel like uh, I, I, I've, I, I'm in the plateau part of my training where I'm not, re- I'm not like advancing on my goals as much. Uh, but I'm consolidating and I'm getting used to kind of trying to set my baseline at like 18 to 20 instead of 15 miles a week. And, you know, there's a certain, certain advancements I'm, I'm making, but it is kind of frustrating because at the beginning, you're like, when you start off, you're like, Oh, I went from three to five in a run very easily. And, you know, Oh my gosh, I, I, you know, I just ran eight, nine miles in one, one go. And that was easy. And then there's some point in the, in the process where you're like, Oh, it's like harder to get these gains. Uh, something that I've actually seen um, Cal Bodhi talk about a little bit with driveline and, and velocity training is that like you'll have a large gain at the beginning. There will be kind of a plateau regression period. And then uh, if you follow the protocols, supposedly you, you break through again in the end. Yeah, you got to break through those walls to uh, to get up to those next levels and uh, maybe you got to train with one of those oxygen mask things, you know, that makes it seem like you're at altitude, even though you're not. Maybe that's step two for you, because if you start using that for a while and then take that away, it's going to be easier to run those distances. Well, it's funny because I've, I've, this is baseball was a hobby for me at one point, and then I turned it into a career. 
And so I, I'm obviously like a, a very enthusiastic hobbyist when it comes to my hobbies. Like I turned a hobby into a career, and then I actually, I've actually done it twice because I had beer graphs and the beer was a hobby, and I and I turned that into a job at some point. So um, I do tend towards that like kind of insane level of enthusiasm for the things I do. Um, but I'm trying also to like just have a few hobbies that I'm not super crazy about like yeah i run i'm not like a runner <laughs> you just do it yeah uh, i i do it you know i i think about it with basketball like i'll read some stuff on basketball you know i've i'll write some stuff on the athletics sometimes about basketball um i enjoy thinking about it i know most of the players i guess you know i, I play a little fantasy basketball but i'm i'm trying to put a stopgap up where i'm like I don't need to watch every playoff game tonight. You know, I don't need to like, I don't need to go nuts. Like there's like a couple weeks of playoffs you can just, you know, peace out on and, and, and kind of get in, get in at the end because they're so big. There's so many players, so many teams in the playoffs that, you know, so I, I'm a, I'm a fair weather basketball fan. If I ranked my hobbies, uh, basketball's down there with cooking as, you know, I'd like to do it. I could go pro in cooking. <laughs> maybe i'm not real good with knives like, especially if i try to work fast <laughs> that's a problem <laughs> that is a problem if i went to culinary school i would probably get like a c or a d in chopping <laughs> in, in knife skills knife skills yeah knife skills would be the class that i need the most of but on today's episode lots of great questions rolling in as always we're gonna talk about barrel rate stabilization sinkers versus two seamers hmm yeah seems like an interesting question uh, the idea that Corbin Burns could be an outlier ace, and everyone's been talking about Austin Gomber on Twitter, so we got a lot of Austin Gomber questions, so we'll try to figure out what's going on with him. Of course, he wrecked people like me a few weeks ago with a bad start in San Francisco, but this was a two-start week for Gomber that's off to a much better start this time around. So let's begin with the barrel rate stabilization question. And I think it was William Contreras who inspired this particular question from Kurt. He writes, you all have talked a lot about when you can start trusting certain stats and barrel rate is one of the first ones that starts to stabilize appropriately placed in quotes here in Kurt's email. I want to emphasize that around 50 balls in play, right? Anyway, can you take a player's performance? Let's say William Contreras, who at the time he wrote this email had seven barrels over 30 some balls in play and assume a floor. Let's assume no more barrels for him over the next 20 balls in play. So 7 out of 50, that's a 14% barrel rate. Could we say at that point that he's at least a 14% barrel rate hitter with the same confidence that we would with 50 balls in play? Seems logical, and if that's the case, why don't we do this more? So can you add those plate appearances without adding the result or add the balls in play without adding the result and reach a stabilization point quickly? And then Kurt admits, also shamelessly plugging a player that I've got on the trade block, so please say good things about him regardless. Keep up the good work. <laughs> All right, so thank you for the email, Kurt. Um, I've never thought to juice the sample and stabilize it because it seems like some high-level, eh, low-level statistical fudging that you probably shouldn't do. Um, and I think there's also that misconception about stabilization points, what what the actual idea of a stabiliz stabilization point is, and how people talk about them and utilize them seem to be two actually pretty different things. 
Yeah, yeah, because uh, so there's a concept that Tom Tango talks about called ballast, where uh, ballast is like the how much of league average, how much league average aggression do you need to bake in? How much weight do you need to put on the leagues on the regression versus what they've shown so far? And the whole idea of stabilization is that once you get to that point, going forward, you can use the player's own stats more than the league regression, league average, except you would still use the league average going forward. So like, yes, you could put all that ballast on William Contreras and get him to 50. But then going past that point, you'd still want to use something like 60% player, 40% league average. So to fill out the rest of the season, you'd still be regressing it, right? Does that does that make sense? Right. So in this example, instead of getting that 14% number, again, seven barrels over 50 balls in play, which was 30 plus the 20 that didn't happen yet, you, you would not look at that 14 and go, oh, that's 14. It, it'd be more like saying it's more like eight or nine once you put in the weight of the league average going forward. Unless you have multiple seasons going back and then you could say okay we'll give let's say Contreras has well now Contreras has uh I don't know if we're doing barrels per batted ball event then he, he's at 20 20 percent seven over over 35 uh but if you had f- other seasons where you had a 10 and a 12 right when you got to the 50 and you said okay now he's at 14 percent for this year we've got uh, a, a, a sort of established level around 12 uh, let's regress him heavily towards 12. And you'd say, most likely going forward, he's still a 12 guy. Yeah. In this case, the, the you'd use league average would be five. So you would take, you you know, even if he got to that 14, you would say, uh, going forward, let's use 60% of 14 and 40% of league average. And yeah, like you said, that probably does end up around eight or nine. Which wouldn't be bad, but then it's interesting too because I think since the time this email came in, we got a few more balls in play from William and no Contreras and no more barrels. So the the, <laughs> the, the the worst case scenario has played out so far, but it could actually come in a bit lower than that. And I think I, I just I want to be very careful about the stabilization points as an argument that a player truly owns skills. And I think the way that Todd Zola has described it to me in the past that makes a lot of sense is that you reach the stabilization point and it's now like equally likely that what you saw in this last sample is as real as you saw previously. And and that's kind of like, okay, like that's still only equally likely. Right. So it's like, that's not a skill that's been locked in. It's not a skill. That's like a thing that you're going to project going forward, which previously I know he's said this and I believed it to work this way too. I used to think it's stabilized. It's a skill. Project it going forward. Do not do that going forward. That is wrong. You will make a lot of mistakes that way. Yeah, it's it's complicated. So you have Alex Kirilov right now has forty seven body balls. Let's say he's got fifty, and he's got a you know a a barrel rate um, around of twenty one percent. That's really good. You'd still regress it halfway to uh, to league average. So you'd still estimate him probably as a 10% bail rate guy going forward. Now you have Byron Buxton, who has 69 batted ball events. Nice. And uh, <laughs> you, you, he has a 21% barrel rate. You would actually regress him a little bit less hard because in 2020, 
In 96 batted balls, he had a 13.5% barrel rate. And then in 26, in uh, 206 batted balls, he had 7.8% barrel rate. So you'd actually kind of do a projection where you would take maybe 50% of his current barrel rate, you know, uh, 30% of last year's barrel rate, 20% of the year before. You might even want to put some league average in there still. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's the Marcel approach, I believe. Yeah, that was Marcel. I just did a, a dirty Marcel. Marcel is five times uh, last season, three times the year before, two times the year before, add them all up, divide by 10. So you could do something like that just in your head to kind of be like, okay, I think Byron Bucks, he's not really a 20% barrel rate guy, but he might be a 12 to 14 guy. He might be a 15 guy. Um, so that, that's a lot of power. That's more power than we expected out of him. The magnitude of the increase in Buxton's case helps a lot when you're using that methodology. He's probably one of the most extreme examples of year-over-year barrel rate increases. We talked about him a few weeks ago. He had a, a track record. If you throw out 2018 because of injuries, he was basically up in barrel rate every single year from the year that he entered the big leagues back in 2015, which eventually, sure, you can't keep going up. Like He's not... He's not going to pop a 25% barrel rate in mm-hmm. 2022. I mean, at least I don't think he will. Um, but yeah, yeah. I guess age is, age is counteracting any sort of, like he's 27 now. This is going to be his peak year. Yeah, so hopefully that helps Kurt and everybody else out there. Oh, we didn't actually help Kurt specifically, though. Do you have anything nice to say about William Contreras? I think he's, I think he's got decent power. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's some questions about strikeout rate and you know he's a young catcher that has other catchers once they're healthy that could just slot right back in front of him so i and i think that maybe he's kind of a conventional catcher type where he's going to hit you like 230 with you know if we're full season 230 with 20 homers i mean that that's like half the catchers in the league but that's good i mean he's Mm -hmm. that kind of catcher you know it it gets worse (laughs) <laughs> it definitely there, gets worse. There's Jeff Mathis. <laughs> yeah, and I think with Contreras long term, I think what's going to determine whether or not he's a, a workhorse catcher or merely you know a guy that hits a lot, kind of sharing the job with someone who's got better defensive chops is the development of how he handles the pitching staff. I think there's mm-hmm. reason to believe he can be a good defensive catcher. It's a rare case where he's a really young guy whose bat seems to be a little bit ahead of his glove at the position, but because of that Travis Darno injury, you know, Atlanta didn't really have a choice and, and they're piling up in Atlanta. Marcelo Zuna is going to miss, I think five to six weeks with that finger injury. That he just suffered. Is that that's the newest uh, report on the, on the dislocated finger? Yeah. I just saw that fly by on one of my screens from David O'Brien. So just traded for him in auto new. I almost traded for him in tout wars. The only thing that kept me from doing it. So I reached out to the guy that had him because I had, I lost Trout in that league, and I was already lagging a little bit in offense, and I thought, I probably got to move Josh Hader for at least one bat. And, well, the Trout injury happened after I started kind of working on a possible trade. Once I lost Trout, I said, I don't know if I can trade Hader and only get one hitter back. I've got a gaping hole to replace while Trout's out, and I needed offense anyway. So if I trade Josh Hader to somebody, I think I need like two $12 hitters back instead instead of like one $25 hitter. So just because of the happy coincidence of losing Mike Trout, I didn't end up following through on that deal to get Ozuna. And it's just, it's unfortunate time because I think he is, I think he's really stable as a hitter. I know the the track record's pretty 
up and down, especially in the batting average department. But you think about where he's played in his career and how difficult it is to hit home runs in those parks with most of his time coming in Miami and St. Louis. That's legitimate, well above average power. And I think in that lineup especially, the best of Marcelo Zuna's season was pretty clearly still in front of him. And now that's on hold until maybe sometime closer to the All-Star break. Big size. And Atlanta becomes a team that I was definitely fearful of a few weeks ago, but I think they're kind of be dropping closer to the middle of the pack in terms of the offensive expectations. Like they can still put up some crooked numbers and do damage. Obviously, you still have Acuna, still have Albi, still have Freeman, but they're not upper crust anymore. So there's there's definitely some more pitchers I'm throwing out there. With the bad news for the Mets when it comes to the hamstring on Carlos Carrasco and the removal of Thor from his rehab start. Uh, yeah. Plus just the ongoing mash unit that is the Mets right now. They lead the league in dollars and players on the IL. I think there's still a window for the Braves. You know, I think they just need to hang around until they're fully fully healthy again. I just, you know, we've talked about their pitchers. I guess they need Max Fried to kind of step up, especially with Soroka out for the year. So there's, there's a couple guys that need to step up. But if they can hang around until Azuna comes back, I still think, like, without looking at numbers, who do you think you would take for the division? If I were betting on it today, I still trust, I trust Atlanta more than I trust the Mets. And they, the Mets have dealt with a ton of adversity so far. So maybe they can find a way to keep weathering it. But part of my belief with the Mets pulling it off this year, winning the division and being a legitimate threat deep into the postseason was getting Syndergaard back. And at least as of today, they're trying to downplay it like it's not that big of a deal. Like they're not overwhelmingly concerned about him leaving that rehab start after just one inning. But that's still a setback, even if it knocks him out for another couple of weeks, right? If they don't get him until July, they previously they were going to get him back in June. That's one more month where they got to patch it together in the back of the rotation paired with all the other injuries they've been dealing with. It kind of seems like they've been fortunate to stay where they're at in the standings to this point. I could see a pretty harsh stretch for them kind of pulling them back into the pack and and that could be really problematic because their depth is being tested in every single facet right now. Yeah, but Acuna gets hit one more time and Atlanta's going to run out an outfield of Pache, Heredia, Inciarte. They are going to catch everything. You can't hit a ball in the outfield if those three guys are out there. I don't even know if Inciarte is healthy. Yeah, but I, I think... I mean, the Mets are two over 500. The Braves are at 500 entering play on Wednesday. The Phillies are only one below 500. You still have the Marlins hanging around. And I still think the Nats are better than people give them credit for. I pulled that it's trick be once. It's a pretty tight finish, maybe. Every single game counts right now in the NL East, but uh, definitely a tough blow for Marcel Ozuna going down for at least the next six weeks. But five to six is what David O'Brien had in his tweet just a little while ago. Uh, I mentioned before, a lot of great questions coming in. This one, I feel like, has been debated in baseball circles. And I found an old piece that David Lorela did over at Fangraphs. And the question came from Tim in St. Louis, who writes, Am I hearing the terms sinker and two-seamer being used interchangeably? I'm only an occasional baseball savant visitor, but I assume these were distinctly different pitches. 
Like from a right-handed pitcher, sinkers go down and two seamers back up into a righty or away from a lefty. Feel free to tell me I'm crazy or that I misheard or explain how I've gone my entire baseball fandom misunderstanding pitch movement. Thanks, Tim in St. Louis. No, he's not at all crazy. I mean, the 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 basic rubric is that sinkers have two-plane movement. They go arm side like he describes and down. And two seamers are usually kind of a one-plane movement thing where they just go they just go across. They just have arm side movement. Um, the difficulty is that when you're looking at the numbers, when you're trying to classify the the pitches, like it's you're guessing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it ends up often being arm slot too. Like the lower your arm slot, the more you uh, of the movement of the pitch will be down, and more sink you'll get. So. Are you just going to say people with lower arm slots throw sinkers and people with higher arm slots throw two seamers? It's like, that seems wrong. Um, So I use it interchangeably and maybe uh, that's wrong, but just generally it's, it's hard. It's very hard when you're looking at the numbers to kind of definitively say, this is a seamer sinker and this is a two seamer. So when I do research, I click both buttons. It's a little bit like the curve and the knuckle curve. I did some research on this. I asked a bunch of players and the knuckle curve might be superior to the regular curve because it usually goes harder, usually spins faster, uh, and it helps people with lower arm slot get on top of the ball. So it's it's a very cool pitch. But is there definitively a difference when you look in the numbers, when you try to, could you be like, look at some movement numbers and velocity numbers and be like, oh, that's a knuckle curve? No, not really. So when I do the analysis, I click knuckle curve and curve and group them together as curves. So that's sort of that's sort of how I treat it. I think there's something about yes, theoretically they're very different pitches, but in practical baseball, it's hard to spot the difference. When I think of uh, two seamers, I think of uh, Trevor Bauer, who is a more traditional sort of high spin over the top, uh, you know, release point kind of guy. He doesn't get a lot of sink on his two seam. And when I think of sinkers, I think of Marcus Stroman. Um, who I think gets a lot of his movement from arm slot and also grip. He has a, a pretty interesting grip, so he kind of finds a way to put a lot, impart a lot of side spin on that pitch. Yeah, I do think of guys more like Stroman when I think of a sinker, but I use the terms interchangeably. And I, I know you're the resident expert here with, with, with pitch grips. Do you find that the variations in the movement that we're describing, do they change at all because of grip in addition to the arm slot? Yeah, I think that's the Stroman thing. There's uh, the the weirder grips go on sinkers. Uh, two seamers are just you kind of take the, the the ball and you've got you know the four seam. You kind of going across. Right? You, you have a you have I, a baseball with an arm. I gotta reach, have don't a you? baseball. Hold on. How do you how do you not? I wish I could take the one behind me and like hand it across the screen to you. That'd be an amazing amazing <laughs> editing. Oh, trick. thanks, dude. <laughs> uh, so uh, four seam. You kind of, you uh, just across the four seams. I'm trying to get that right. There you go. You're kind of across the four seams, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of ripping down on that. And then a two seam is just usually your two seams. But then the, you got like guys who do one seamers, like Joe Musgrove, do a one seamer. Uh, but uh, when you when you do a four seam like this, the spin is really uh, like this. 
Why is it not? There we go. The spin is like this. And that creates ride. When you do a two seam, and then you can get some seam shifted wake where if you got if you if you the seam shifted wake is if the if if one seam sticks around and creates a wake. So if you kind of spun like this, see how this uh this is here for a lot of the time against the wind? Mm-hmm. That creates a wake. And I think that pushes it down like this. So uh, it's a function of seam shifter wake. It's a function of physics. It's a function of the grip. It's a function of the arm slot. The arm slot just imparts, if you have a lower arm slot, it imparts more sideways spin. Because if you think about it, if you're up here, you impart vertical spin. But if, you're, if your arm slot starts going down this way, it's not just vertical spin anymore. It's sideways spin. And the more sideways spin on it, the less vertical spin it has and the less upward push it has. So less ride it has, and so therefore more sink. So guys down here will throw sinkers. Guys up here will throw four seamers and true two seamers that just go sideways. Yeah, I guess I think there's also probably something to be said for the the goal for the pitcher, depending on what other stuff he throws. He's pitching against all those other things that might come into play. You might be trying to do something that sinks more than something that has that arm side run, like depending on who you are and what other stuff you have. Yeah, I think two-plane movement is generally uh, better because, you know, the bat is 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 smaller than it is longer. So two-plane movement will get it off the will get it off the bat, whereas uh, one-plane movement, like a cutter or a two-seamer, will just get it to go along the bat. So get it off the end of the bat or jam them. Just get it off the sweet spot with sideways movement. So when you have sideways movement and vertical movement, you're more likely to miss the bat. Um, but I just think that it's it's kind of hard. Uh, and generally, uh, baseball prefers more over-the-top guys because they want that ride. So if you're over-the-top, you have to really have great seam shift to wake effects in order to get any sink because all of your spin is like this and giving you ride. So a guy like Frankie Montas, super over the top, good ride on the four seam, found a seam shifted wake effect on his sinker to get some sink, but it's still mostly just a two seam. It doesn't have a ton of sink. It doesn't have a ton of sink compared to like a Marcus Stroman sinker. Do you think that complements the splitter that he throws particularly well though, given the differences in those pitches? There's something going on with Montas that I just don't understand. Um, and I think... I think it has to do with him devolving into a two-pitch pitcher at times, maybe against certain to pitch uh, pitchers, uh, certain hitters, or late in games. Because if you just look at, you know, Frankie Montas overall, and you say, okay, this is a guy who has a really good uh, four seam in terms of velocity. Uh, it's got good ride. Um, you know, by stuff plus his four seam fastball is twenty percent better than the average. Uh, he's got a good split finger that should neutralize uh, lefties. That's by by uh, split, his split finger is 117 stuff plus. He's got a good slider, 141 stuff plus. Like, what's the problem here? Even his command plus is not even uh, that bad. Let me see here. Let me find his command plus. I just downloaded a new one today. Um, his command plus, I think, is average. Let me see here. 102. So I don't get what the problem is. The sinker uh, that I just gave some love to is 84 stuff plus, and he throws it more often than his four seam. 
So as much as he's made the sinker a viable pitch for him, I think that he maybe falls in love with it too much. It's interesting. I mean, I guess I had a similar thought when I was looking at Corbin Martin got hit by the Giants. And I maybe I keep underestimating the Giants. Like they've got a track record going back to last season of exceeding expectations offensively and they're they're doing I, a lot more damage and I streamed him somewhere for that two start week. It made sense. Giants are good though. They are good, but it still made sense to me because Corbin Martin is supposed to be good. But what Corbin Martin is doing or what the Diamondbacks are asking him to do or what their game plans are doing with him right now is they're having him throw his four seamer sixty five to seventy percent of the time. And I don't get it because if you look at the stuff numbers on everything else, his secondaries are good. He has yeah. good pitches he's not using, and he's throwing the fastball way too much. And I don't know where exactly in the script that's going wrong, but it's just frustrating to be able to see, like, no, this should be working. And it kind of falls in line with some of the scouting reports that we were getting on Martin as a prospect, but the execution just isn't there. Yeah, it's uh it is interesting because his slider has a 140 stuff plus and he's thrown 9 of them and his four seam fastball has an 87 stuff plus and he's thrown 118 of them. <laughs> yeah, it's two starts. It's just like don't throw that pitch nearly that much. The location plus on his slider uh Martin slider is 74. Mm. Um and let me do pitcher by type here and find uh Corbin Martin um Oh, why are there so many Corbins? Come on. Yeah, I don't know what the, the Corbin boom was all about. <laughs> Corbin Martin slider command plus. 93. Eh. I w- if I was looking at this, I would say replace a lot of those four seamers with sliders. As long as you can put them in the right place. I know why there was a Corbin boom. Corbin Burnson, dude. L.A. Law. Think about the timing of when that show was popular. Corbin Burnson as a, a prominent actor at that time think about the age of corbin martin and corbin burns huh i think that solved it i think this is it oh my goodness that's it right what else could it possibly be why else would corbin be such a popular name for guys in their early and mid-20s right now plausible we've got it sleuth sleuthed absolutely sleuth on the fly too didn't even take me a whole afternoon come up with that just just knocked it out right there on the fly I think we've lost our place on the rundown were we going to talk about the giants um they weren't on the rundown but we can talk about them or we can save them because we got austin gomber coming up in just a minute i i now uh i've come into this problem oh yeah you can come up with austin gomber but or we can just use it right now as a as a transition mm, let's pay some bills real quick all right let's pay some bills. hey this is andrew schlecht from the athletic The NBA Finals begins on June 6th, and we have you covered at the Athletic NBA Show. Join us Monday through Friday to hear voices like Zach Harper, David Aldridge, Marcus Thompson, Dave DeFore, Sam Amick, and many more. We will have instant reaction shows after every Finals game, plus podcasts to take you behind the scenes in between games. Listen to the Athletic NBA Show wherever you get your podcasts. All right, you know, I know you're excited about the Giants, so we're going to get there through Austin Gomber, a Rocky. Uh, Questions that came in about Austin Gomber were basically, is Austin Gomber getting better? I mentioned earlier, people like me streamed him earlier in the year for a two-start week. The Giants crushed him, ruined our perception of who Austin Gomber is as a pitcher. And look, he's still a starter in Colorado. There's still only a few select times you can use him. As it turns out this week, 
at the Mets, at the Pirates, kind of that perfect storm you're looking for to throw a low-end pitcher out there. But looking at some of the underlying numbers, stuff plus, command plus, are you seeing anything that points to a more usable Austin Gomber than we might have thought coming off of his blow-up in San Francisco a few weeks ago? I mean, yes, his stuff plus is up. And in his last start against the Mets, it was a career high, 88. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. Uh, None of his pitches rates above average by stuff plus. The slider and changeup, though, are pretty close to average. The four seam is a 62. That's worse than Corbin Martin's four seamer, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yep, um, and Gordon Martin's secondary stuffs are all are all way uh, way better. So, uh, also kind of disconcerting that the knuckle curve is a seventy-two stuff plus because that's uh, his second most used secondary. So I don't know that he has an overall you know package that makes me super excited. And then of course he's a rocky and it's hard to use. And then you kind of think about like, well, you you know we already tried this. And what was, do you remember the second half of that? Second start wasn't as bad. Like I, I was stuck with him because it was a weekly league. It was passable. I want to say f- at least five innings. I don't think it was more than three earned runs. Maybe even got a win in that second one out, if hmm. I remember correctly. I, I remember Ian sending me a text to go, hey, I'm rooting for you today, bud. Like, <laughs> like, you, you, pro tip, if you want to just going to rub me the wrong way, call me bud. I don't know. It's <laughs> one of the few things that kind of pisses me off. I, I don't, just don't like it. Unfortunately, I call my children buddy, and every once in a while, uh, I'll get in trouble. (laughs) I'll get in trouble and call my wife buddy. (laughs) (laughs) See, she probably likes it even less than I would like that. I think so. But uh, yes, at Arizona, four strikeouts, two earned runs in six innings with a win. So um, all in all, you got nearly eight innings with 11 earned runs. So, Oh, yay. uh, But you got the win. Uh, anyway, <laughs> it's the, seven Ks. The thing that I think the I think the thing to learn here is don't stream against the Giants. Uh, first of all, uh, you know a totally decimated Mets team. Like I'd like to see what Gomber does against the Pirates. I bet you. I mean, I bet you won't be that good uh, because I think that Mets team at that moment was was really picking on picking on the kid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just really just beating up on on uh, like a quad A fully injury replacement type lineup. Um, and so I, 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 I think that was about the best streaming situation you could have. I, I am interested to see what happens to pirates, but don't consider the giants a patsy. That's my point here. Maybe Gomber is streamable this week. That's fine. But don't consider if the giants are part of your two start week, don't necessarily be like, Oh yeah, that's fine. Because I, you know, a I think that's a home park that obscures that uh, that belief a little bit. Um, you know, there, there it is still one of the the best pitchers parks in the league. But on top of that is just the awesome job that Donnie Ecker and that hitting coaching staff is doing in San Francisco. That is actually having on tangible on field results with with guys that you know. When I wrote with Baggerly last year that the Giants had had the best year over year turnaround in an offensive turnaround in like twenty years, there was a lot of people who say, "Oh, it's twenty twenty, which was a good point. Uh, and it, it just it's just regression; it'll go away again next year. Well, all those guys have gotten better: Longo, Crawford, Belt. They're all having career best years in reach rate and in barrel rate. And 
those things are related. I think there's a real tangible game plan. If you ask Brandon Bell, he says, I just get the information I want at the right time. I just had a, a, a plate discipline stat that I, that, that I re- relayed on Twitter today that was from, uh, from stats. And it was like, who swings at the best pitches and doesn't swing at the worst pitches? Brandon Belt was fourth overall in that, in that stat. So I think that they're just getting the most out of them. And this is the kind of thing that the Padres, uh, that the Dodgers have been doing forever. The Dodgers have been, if you look over the StatCast era, you know, top three in barrels and top three in reach rate. Well, this year, the top three teams in reach rate are Giants, Dodgers, and Padres. And the Giants now are third in baseball and barrel rate. So I think these things are really related. If you can not swing at, strike, at, at balls, you can get the, the most out of your batted balls. And uh, and so I don't think the Giants are patsies. I'm not necessarily saying that like Brandon Crawford is going to hit 30 home runs this year, but I would not at all be surprised if he has a career high in home runs. And I think that just generally that offense is well put together and just well prepared. I think what you're seeing there is like the value of game day prep. It's still there's still an edge to be gained. And that's what you see with the Indians, a really great combination of park factor and and pitch preparation. You know, so that's why their pitchers always kind of overshoot the mark, I think. A couple thoughts here. Uh, the main one is, well, I think there are three phases you go through as a rebuilding offense. First, you're just bad. You don't mm-hmm. score. You probably strike out a lot. Even if you don't strike out that much, you just don't score. You're just not good, right? So you start off as, as bad. Then you get some guys that can do damage. So you start doing damage, but you strike out a little too much. So you build an offense like the one the Giants have now, maybe like the offense we've seen in Tampa Bay. I would say the Brewers kind of fit like this too, right? It's not a top-end offense, but it's an offense that when it's working, it's really good. The Giants have a 102 WRC plus as a team mm-hmm. this season. So yeah, they're they're at least league average. They just strike out a little more than, than most. And then eventually, when you get to that level where you're doing damage, you start getting better players. So then your K rate starts to come down because you're able to go out and kind of paper over some of the holes the with free agent upgrades. The right, Astros again. and the Cubs, before they won, they they both really increased their, decreased their strikeout rate. And some of that's young like young players coming up, striking out more at first, bringing it down over time. Some of that's your, your veterans who are selling out to get to the power. There's a number of some narratives that, that can signing get you there. Michael Brantley as a free agent, you know, signing mm-hmm. signing guys to replace right. the, you know, instead of having Chris Carter out there anymore, you've, you, you kind of go to Yuli Gurriel and then Michael Brantley. You kind of like, you kind of just improve the strikeout rate on the margins. Right. So they're in phase two and phase three is bringing up, you know, Luciano and eventually guys like Luis Matos and some guys that should be elite hitters with lower K rates. That'll bring that number down. And obviously we've talked about Tampa with Bruhan and Wander being two guys that are going to bring that K rate down. So, you know, I, I think that's sort of just the development of going from bad to good offensively. And the giants are smack dab in the middle of that process. I uh, thought too here though, is that Austin Gomber, couldn't find the plate in his first start as a Rocky. That was against the Dodgers at Coors back on April 4th. He walked seven hitters that day. Just a miserable start. He's had a couple of four-walk starts since then, but a lot of ones and twos and even a couple zeros sprinkled in. After that debut, he's gone at least five innings in every single start except for that Giants meltdown. And that was just the day where nothing was working for him. I mean, that was something that I think Scott Jensen pointed out. He's like, it didn't matter who he was pitching against that day. He could have been pitching against 
the beat-up Mets version of the lineup they've got right now. He would have got hit by that group of guys. He would have got hit by literally anybody with the stuff that he had on that day. Sometimes pitchers just don't have it. That was his day where he just didn't have it. So I think the one thing you are getting from Gomber in leagues that are deep enough to use him still mostly on the road, command's going in the right direction, and you're getting depth into games, which if you're playing in a quality starts league or a league that rewards innings or even just a typical league that rewards wins, he's at least on a bad team hanging around in games long enough to give himself a shot at decisions, which is important. We talked about it with Marco Gonzalez, you know, having mm-hmm. that that trait. And we, we care about wins in this game. So I do think there are some things happening with Gomber that are making him more palatable than he was even just a few weeks ago. The problem is still Coors Field. There are so few times where I would think about using him at home. Maybe we get to August or September, and at that point, you're just chasing the wins and Ks, and you don't care anymore about the ratios possibly getting blown up. But I find it really difficult to hold him in most mixed leagues. All right, I'm going down my rankings. I'm going to get to the point where I don't start the guy at Coors Field. Uh, we're, or, or how about this? I'll put it this way. Cause you know, people can quibble with my rankings. How about this? Uh, three straight guys. I wouldn't start at Coors Field. Okay. Um, three straight guys. I wouldn't start. Oh, okay. 38, 39, 40 Dylan Bundy, Chris Bassett, Zach Eflin. Yep. I wouldn't want to play any of those guys in Coors. And you could probably say some of the guys ahead of that because you have different, like you have different rankings than I do. And, any listener has different rankings than I do, but let's say it's safe that like basically your top 30, you want to start at course. Right. And that comes with an asterisk of you might have really good pitching depth and your next best option is good enough to say, not even taking the risk with a top 20 or 25 range guy. Like yeah. there might be some back end options you don't have to use. But that seems most likely the easy rubric is you could start your two best pitchers at Coors and nobody else. I could live with that as a, a general rule to live by. Gomber is not, hopefully, one of your two best pitchers. <laughs> if you're in an NL West only league and weren't allowed to draft Dodgers this year, maybe? No, no, it still should only, be true. Denver only league, Rockies only league. I kind of think we should make a format like that where you, oh for people who God. are just fans of one team, like a micro league where maybe it's like two, three, or four people. And you do draft have everybody to be like on the a team. Pick six or something. You can't. I mean, there's too many. There's not enough players. No, you keep it small. Keep it casual, though. I just think we got to find more ways to get people to play who haven't tried to play. You can't. You can't take the plunge from not playing at all to saying I'm going into a 15 team NFBC league. Like there's there should be some some steps in between. It shouldn't be your only option to take mm-hmm. the full plunge like that. Uh, but thanks a lot for the questions about Austin Gomber because. He's interesting, more interesting than he was even just a few weeks ago. And as you all know, the quickest way to my heart and the quickest way to our rundown is to ask a question about a brewer. That is the (laughs) surest shortcut. And obviously, for those who've listened to the show for more than a few days. Did you see where I put Freddie Peralta on my rankings, dude? I actually didn't notice how high he was. Do you you want me to look right now and then have my shock face happen? Oh, yeah, just tell me. Where is he? 16th. <laughs> uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't come up with a reason to put him lower. His rest of season projection by the bat is 12th best. Jeez. His stuff plus was 115. His command plus is 101. His K minus BB was 
I, I was like, if I put him any lower, someone will say, you don't trust your own like rubric. That's one of the biggest movers from draft season to now. It, Probably the biggest I feel mover. like it's going to be wrong, but why? It's I'm not, not going to tell you it's wrong. It's not a slider. I mean, is he a two-pitch pitcher? He does throw a curveball, right? He's about a 2.333 pitch pitcher, <laughs> if we're being precise. But at least those pitches are the pitches in baseball right now. You're talking about like sort of a hard, high-spin, riding four-seamer that he throws with full extension, just blowing up at you. And then the, oh, so this is actually a decent transition. He's the modern, he's like what you want out of the modern pitcher. He's a riding four-seam guy with a, with a, with a power slider. Right, mm-hmm. so I guess the question is length into games, third pitch. He can be inefficient when he's not locating well. That yeah. is absolutely a, a weakness. Pitch count runs up, and he's out after five or in the middle of the sixth. That's that's a problem. But I mean, how many pitchers have length right now? That there's so many pitchers that are out in the fifth and sixth. Right. If you're giving him an A to F grade for ability to pitch deep into games, he's probably only like a B or a B minus at worst. So compared to the league, yeah. Yeah, it's not that bad. Uh, so you yeah, put him, you put him 10, 15 years ago. He's an F. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> F, for, F for Freddie, and yeah. <laughs> Why not? But I uh, had a question come in about Corbin Burns, and uh, it's interesting because we've called today's league a slider and four seamer with ride league. So uh, this email came from. How did I miss the name on this? I will look up the name momentarily. Anyway, email reads as follows: This pitcher had one of the most dominant. Highest whiff sliders in baseball, which he threw about 30% of the time and paired with a four-seamer that big leaguers destroyed. He then made a pitch-mix change, started throwing the slider about one-third as often, and became one of the best starters in baseball. The pitcher, of course, is Corbin Burns, probably an editor Corbin Burnson. Last name, just a coincidence. We <laughs> we know he dropped his four-seamer for a cutter, which he throws more than half the time, and a sinker change slider and curve all about 10% of the time each. The strange part, I guess, is that his strikeout rate hasn't taken a hit. In fact, he is an elite strikeout pitcher. So what makes him different from other two-seamer sinker pitchers? And for me, the answer is that cutter. Because the cutter is something he commands really well. And because of that movement, the problem with the four-seamer, it was pretty flat, right? And it would get just murdered when he missed with it. The cutter gives him some buffer. Like He can miss a little with the cutter and live to tell the tale with the hard contact not being as bad. But he commands that cutter all over and around the strike zone. That, to me, is just the the huge difference with Burns, even though that deep arsenal obviously gives him a lot of weapons he can use to turn the lineup over that third time. I mean, within the constellation that is Cor- Corbin Burns, it made sense for him to make that pitch mix change because, like you said, the forcing was flat, and he couldn't command it. So between those two things, it got blasted. That's how he had that three homers per nine or whatever in that one year. So moving to the sinker as his primary fastball, unless you call the cutter it, whatever, but moving towards more sinkers than four seams was just about command at first. He commanded the sinker better. So he just put it in better places and avoided damage. But yes, the reason he's so excellent is because the cutter is really his primary pitch. And that is a pitch that, you know, I can tell you from stuff plus cutter is 116 stuff plus for, you know, a primary pitch. That's really great. You know, for example, Peralta's four seam is around there. So, you know, that's that's a that's a really great way to do it. And then I guess the answer, what makes him an outlier, what makes him so successful is that in some ways he is the modern pitcher. He leads the league in spin rate. 
And so, you know, other than, so if you look at just pitches thrown over a 2800 RPM, this is actually from John Boy. Uh, he was doing this while we were uh, on his podcast yesterday on Talking Yanks. He, he did a search for percentage of pitches or number of pitches over 2800 RPM. Number one is Trevor Bauer with like 700. Number two is Corbin Burns with like 400. So he's got the highest spin rate on a cutter in baseball. And like, I think we're still trying to understand completely why spin is good because it doesn't always turn into movement and you think it it's the movement that's good. But I will tell you that the further we go into the rabbit hole that is Stuff Plus, the more spin seems to matter. Like the next version of, st- of Stuff Plus, we may break out spin from transverse to, and gyro spin, which is we may break spin into its component spins uh, to get a better sense of the value of each of those types of spins. And um, the early indication is that that will make a big difference in our model. So spin is good. And Corbin Burns has a ton of it. And that in that way, he's a modern pitcher. In the four-seam slider way, he's, he's not necessarily. The interesting second part of the question kind of compares Burns to the Dodgers relievers who also you know throw some pretty high-spin pitches and are filthy with velo especially, but they don't tend to miss that many bats for the stuff that they have. Brewster Gratterall, probably the absolute best example. You know, we kind of like the equivalent of what we used to see from Dustin May pre-injury last season where it was like, this guy's not striking more guys out with this arsenal. How's that happening? Uh, how much of this really is just the five different pitches and hitters just not really knowing what's coming? Because the slider wasn't a bad pitch for Burns, but he's just not using it nearly as much as you think that he would use it for as good as it is. Yeah, I I, I bet you there's some interaction effects. Hmm. By Stuff Plus... Sliders is best pitch, 180. It's one of the best sliders in baseball. And the usage rate is pretty low for a pitch that good. I wonder, I don't have an, I don't have a great answer, but I do wonder if like, you know, if you're throwing a cutter a ton, even if the slider looks like it should be really great, if you need to be careful because they're like too similar in some way. You see, I'm also looking at the, um, Corbin Burns command plus on the slider. And while you're looking that up, by the way, thank you to Peter for this question. I I, I like this question anyway. It's not just because it's about Corbin Burns. That is a happy coincidence. (laughs) 97 on the, on the slider. I I think, you know, one of the things too, is that pitch makes is a kind of a snapshot in time. A lot of times I think pitchers actually think about facing divisional opponents again, later in the season. I've actually, had pitchers admit to me, they'll be like, oh, they're going to see more of this pitch later in the season. You know? Hmm. And so, you know, somewhere between if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I'm going to have to face these guys a lot of times and I have other pitches and there'll be other games where you're surprised how many curveballs I throw because his curveball rates well. <laughs> mm-hmm. His curveball has 142 stuff plus. So if he can... You know, maybe you'll have a game where he busts out a ton of curveballs and he's like super excited about his curveball all of a sudden. So in any case, he can really spin it. Even the changeup rates well. Um, I don't really foresee a, a problem, even if it's um, doesn't have he doesn't have a four seam with ride. He does have a 
foundational fastball type pitch that has good that has good stuff. And in fact, I think that is the calculus that needs to be made that we that we that I'm not amazing at that we're not amazing at, which is you need to have a certain amount of pitches that have stuff, and you need to have a certain amount of pitches that have command. You know your action pitches and your command pitches. It's great. You really, what you want is one of those to be both. That's why Cronenberg is good. His stuff, his cutter is good by stuff and good by command. And so he can use it if he needs to steal strikes or if he needs a swing strike. And then he, then you need to have other pitches you can command really well that you can use for, you know, when you need a, a strike. But you can't just have one pitch you can command really well. That's not going to work because hitters are going to know in certain instances that you're going to have to throw that pitch. In and certain counts. They can hunt yeah. it. Like when we look at Carlos Rodon's changeup, um, or you know, other people like you, you've seen pitchers that have a good changeup, and you're like, why don't they throw it more? The reason is they don't, they can't command it, so they can only really throw it in two strike counts, and it can't be like a three two count. Yeah. So a great email from Peter, and uh, I would say Burns is more of like the, as you said, the new prototype of what an ace is trying to be, and what a new ace is going to look like, rather than uh, an outlier. Like could be an outlier now, but could be more normal in the future. All right, let's get to a question about Tyler Ivey, who came up, made a start, and vanished. And I think it's kind of interesting. If you play in a deeper league, keeper and dynasty leagues or AL-only leagues, you're always kind of waiting to see which next option is going to come up on a team like Houston, especially, given some of the development success stories they've had on the pitching front. Um, so the question was very, uh, very future-forward. It came from Tim. By the time you read this, Tyler Ivey will likely have made his big league debut. Yep. Could you break down his long and short-term value based on his stuff plus and command plus in his first start? His strikeout rates in the minors have always impressed, but I've been burned by the Houston minor league voodoo in the past with Francis Martes and David Paulino, where their pitching prospects look untouchable in the minors and then don't quite have the same stuff when they get to the majors. So obviously not a guy we're picking up right now in redraft leagues, but what do we see from Tyler Ivey that first time out? Good news and bad news. Uh, Command Plus is ninety-two. I think, given that it's on one start, uh, I think you could you could give him league average command. The rest of the good news is the curveball and change did uh, pop as as good by stuff plus, and the four seam fastball was a ninety-five stuff plus. I've learned from looking at this that that is around average, even if it doesn't say one hundred. Four seam fastballs are usually a little bit lower. That's a capable. That's a sort of a, a cromulent. Uh, four-seam fastball there from Tyler Ivey. The bad news is the slider was a 77 stuff plus. Uh, the good news is that um, it's uh, more important uh, for sliders uh, to uh, to have command than, than, than stuff. His command plus on the slider was 112. So may not be the most amazing breaking ball, but he can place it. Uh, the curveball looks legit. I'm not saying this is a guy that uh, pops in the same way that even like an Urquidy did for me in the postseason, in the preseason. Uh, but I, I like him some. I think that uh, his low strikeout rate in the debut was an anomaly. He has enough stuff to to strike out more guys in the future. Yeah, so probably someone worth considering if he has a more prolonged opportunity. Nice that he threw four pitches in his debut, right? Like he only went four, you know, you know, four and a half innings. You, 
he didn't have to show all his pitches. So he, he shows confidence in throwing all four pitches. That's also a good thing. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Because a lot of times you see guys with three or four pitches in the scouting report and they lean on two when they show up. And you're kind of like, well, how are you going to make it deep into starts throwing two pitches if they're not both amazing pitches from uh, day one? Uh, Tim was also curious if we saw a path for Edward Olivares in Kansas City. He is off to a fantastic start at AAA. It's a level he didn't previously play at, by the way, of course. Olivares got a chance in San Diego during the shortened season. I think he was up briefly in Kansas City after the trade last year, too, and, you know, didn't play all that well for a first time. Big Leaguer had a 70 WRC plus, but check out his plate skills in the minors. He's got 11.9% for the walk rate right now, a 13.1% K rate, a 200 WRC plus, which even if you're 25 at AAA is pretty amazing. There's power, there's speed. The question is, is there a path for him to actually contribute in Kansas City anytime soon? Because you know, one thing I'm doing right now is I'm just hunting depth charts for players who are underperforming and seeing if there's a short-term path that way or if a guy like Olivares just needs an injury to one of the regulars before he gets that call back to Kansas City. He's doing well, but he's also 25. You know, and this would be his second or third attempt at double A or triple A and higher. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Considering that he didn't, he didn't have it last year. So I kind of, it's almost like a veteran going down on rehab at this point. Like he should be doing this well if he's got any ability in the major leagues. So I don't know that it's moving the needle for me in terms of what I think he could be. I don't necessarily, like maybe if the walk rate holds, then you can have a guy that might be around league average with the bat and league average with the glove in a corner situation that could hit you 15 homers and steal you 10 bases in a full season. And I don't see him swim moving past... I mean, not Ben Attendi. With Merrifield out in second, you'd have to have you'd have to have Merrifield at second, Lopez out, and he'd have to beat out Isbell. Yeah, there's a chance there. Nicky Lopez is doing okay for some reason. Uh, Isbell's back down. Lopez, he's got a 77 WRC plus. I think the path for me for Olivares would be if they're comfortable not playing Michael Taylor in center field every day. If they want to use him as more of a bench outfielder, use Witt there and, and shuffle things around and, and put Olivares in a corner, maybe that's the the way it actually happens. I mean, Mike, Michael Taylor's doing kind of exactly what you'd expect him to do with the increased role. I mean, he's showing power, he's showing speed, he's striking out a lot, so he's a low average, low OBP, good center fielder, like on track to be like a one and a half to two win player kind of glove first, right? Like that's good, but not, not great. valued by the marketplace. Not someone that anybody is really going to trade a real asset to get. Not someone that would command uh, any money, any sort of money on the open market. And so therefore, if you follow that train of thought, not someone maybe that the Royals value that highly. Right. So more of a, a temporary solution for them in center. But Lopez is bad. Lopez is bad. He's walking and he's not striking out a lot, but he's not really doing much when he hits the ball. So Lopez should be the utility infielder. Well, now that the we've got Mondesi back this week, I think that kind of pushes Lopez back into that reserve role. 
I would I would just personally play Merrifield and because and then Olivares and Taylor and you know Merrifield can play some in the outfield too. The player you described, you know, decent average, double digit homers, double digit steals, that plays in most mixed leagues, like at least fifteen teamers with five outfielders, but maybe even some twelves if it turns into everyday playing time. So I'm definitely intrigued by what he's doing. I do see a path. I don't think he's going to be a star, but I think he can be an above average option for deeper leagues because he can contribute. But he's a, he's a minor leaguer, so like, would, would you stash him over Joe Adele or Brandon Marsh? No, not over Jaron Duran or you know or the Ron Wander. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's not cracking that group, but but yeah. maybe the next group. Yeah, kind of a, a second tier guy, probably not a stash, but more of a watch list sort of player where. Mm. When we get that call, I'm interested. I'm going to go ahead and make a move. Because we could be stashing Franco all year and not get him. I was thinking about that because I'm writing my prospect piece for this week. And Super 2 considerations seem pretty likely at Mm. this point. I mean, why wouldn't they be a factor if you're waiting this long? And that means we're still talking about weeks instead of days. And it also means that we could see Bruhan before Wander. That wouldn't be all that surprising. He's like three years older. And he's putting together better numbers right now at AAA, as he probably should as the older player. But I think the other part of this is when you think about the Rays, the moves they have to make, Those that's not the problem. They made the big move trading Willie Adames. The two corresponding moves they have to make to get both Bruhan and Wander up, one option, Mike Brasso, easy to do. He's been brutal so far this season. He has options left. So you're not exposing him to waivers. Two, uh, expose Brett Phillips to waivers if someone doesn't get hurt or you don't trade someone else. That's not a high bar to clear to get both of those guys into the big leagues at this point. Yeah. What did uh, I reached out to Jason Martinez who does roster resource. Um, and he said, one thing that I don't know how to translate for our readers is he said the cutoff for super two was around 2.115 in the past. Yeah. What does that mean? Two years and 115 days. 115 days. Yep, because it's the top 22% of players in service time between years two and three. That's the cutoff for Super 2. It is the most ridiculous, random thing. Okay, so 115 days. So they'd rather not... They'd want the player to play fewer than 115 days going forward. So 115 divided by 30 is 3.8. But since it's all relative, it depends on what the rest of the league has been doing with the service time of players in that range. 3.8, so 24 days. So that means somewhere between 6 and 10 days into June. Right. At the shorter end, if you want to err on the side of caution and leave some buffer for yourself in case the whole league is manipulating it, yeah, then you wait a little longer just to make sure. And and then I think it gets to the the business-type questions eventually where it's like, okay, the AL East has three teams clearly contending for the division title. The Jays... I wouldn't say you could, could be counted out of it. They're at least a credible playoff threat. Every game matters in that division too because the difference between winning the AL East and going to the wild card game in terms of the revenue you get and the guaranteed playoff games, that's a pretty significant gap. So if they felt that they had to bring both of those guys up, spend the extra money on the extra year of arbitration just to make the playoffs this year at not as a wild card team, maybe it pays for itself that way depending on how those numbers line up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, go to Tampa and make that argument, please. Uh, the <laughs> I don't need my goofy thoughts bouncing around. They, they've got plenty of people way smarter than me that have already 
probably made these police. There's probably people on that in that org that are like, come on, let's just call them up. Let's just let's put the foot on the gas right now. Let's make this team even better than it already is. Like they're winning like crazy right now. They they they've got a top seven offense. They're averaging five runs per game right now. There's only seven teams doing that. But they breaking news. Yes. Breaking news. No, this is not this is not that fun. It's fun of a different kind. Today, today, and the news today, Joe West has broken the record for uh, umpiring games. And in the game in which he broke the record, he tossed Cardinals manager Mike Schilt. He's just a perfect demonstration of Joe Westianism. Joe Westism. I have no idea if it's because I'm a fan of a Westianity. <laughs> Maybe it's because I'm a fan of a different team than Division, but for some reason. Mike Schilt getting tossed from a game just warms the cockles of my heart. <laughs> I don't have nothing. You're also cheering the fact that Michael Kopeck sprained his ankle falling off the mound. <laughs> but never cheer that. I like Michael Kopeck. Right. I have an anti-Mike thing. I, I just I I don't know. I don't know why Mike Schilt in particular, like him getting tossed, especially by Joe West. <laughs> Would anyone you'd never want to get tossed by Angel Hernandez, right? That would be the most humiliating thing possible. Joe West's book is so long. I think it yeah. was it that AJ Hinch said uh, he was really early on in managing and he got tossed from second. Joe West tossed him from second base. <laughs> <laughs> it was like in his debut as a manager or something. Who do you think has the highest total of? umpire ejections of the same manager it's probably bobby cox as the manager is joe west <laughs> joe the umpire west who's, the who's umpire. tossed him the most times <laughs> oh man i wish that umpire stats were more searchable like that <laughs> that's what we we need baseball reference to add umpire more umpire database. stats for us <laughs> hey sean foreman uh, you're doing a ton of work to maintain this awesome site could you do some more and just get some umpire data in there for us for our i our think there's actually pleasure? a fair amount of pushback from the umpire union otherwise we'd have more more public umpire dating data agreed i am with you it's a hard job but we, we don't say that enough that's actually a very hard job that is made to look easier than it really is thanks to amazing modern technology and uh yeah i don't know i'm not defending the umpires i'm just saying we should have a little more respect for the difficulty of the job and I actually love Joe West for the moment for tossing Mike Schilt. <laughs> I'm sure Mike Schilt deserved it. Uh, if you're enjoying this show, as I mentioned earlier, please take a moment to leave us a nice rating and review. If you'd like to support The Athletic by getting a subscription, we'd really appreciate that too. $3.99 a month is the current deal we have to start at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. On Twitter, he is at Enoceris. I am at Derek Van Riper. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Friday. Thanks for listening.